My name is Scott Nye, and this is Talking Radical Radio. Hello and welcome to Talking Radical Radio, where we bring you grassroots voices from across Canada. We give you the chance to hear many different people that are facing many different struggles, talk about what they're doing, how they're doing it, and why they're doing it, in the belief that such listening is a crucial step in strengthening all of our efforts to change the world. On this week's show, I will be speaking with Tegan Barton. Some people's understanding of political music begins and ends with a stereotype of 1960s folk songs. But, of course, there are almost as many different flavors of musical resistance as there are movements and communities in struggle, from the songs of slaves in the U.S. South in the 19th century, to the adaptation of Christian hymns by labor militants in the early 20th century, through blues and punk and hip-hop and songs of national liberation around the world, to the upsurge in recent years of indigenous musicians spitting decolonial truths across Turtle Island, and much, much more. In different contexts and different moments, musical assertions of dignity and demands for justice and liberation can manifest in a dizzying diversity of forms. But what about our moment, our context? The grip that commerce holds over music can be very tight, limiting in profound ways whose music gets heard and who is able to make a living performing, and this often does not favor artists who prioritize putting a message into their songs. Yet we are in a moment of overlapping crises, from incipient climate catastrophe, to ongoing state violence against black and indigenous people, to skyrocketing income inequality, to the growing power of a racist and violent far right. Resistance is happening on all of these fronts and many more, and so music is being made that embodies this resistance. In kitchens and living rooms, around fires and in community halls, in basements and warehouses, And, if you're lucky, you can find a space near you that is dedicated to nurturing, supporting, and amplifying such musical resistance. The Hillside Summer Festival is a music festival that has existed in the small south-central Ontario city of Guelph for over three decades. When it started out in the 1980s, the environmental movement was at a relative high point, so while the festival didn't begin with a commitment to politics and its content, It did start out with a commitment to environmental conscientiousness in its operations. Over the years, that has become a core principle of how the festival is organized and one of the key things that it is known for. Tegan Barton is a publicist for Hillside, and she describes a gradual expansion of this ethic over the years to incorporate an increasingly expansive vision of social justice and peacemaking. For instance, in a context in which many festival lineups vastly underrepresent women musicians, for the last few years Hillside has, with little fanfare, ensured its lineup exhibits gender parity or better. And this year? Well, this year, music of protest and resistance is Hillside's theme. While there will also be many artists who channel their work in other directions, a solid subset of the performers that will be featured at the festival between July 14th and 16th are artists whose work is explicitly political. Attendees will be able to hear performers like Anishinaabe singer Leonard Sumner, DJ Shub, formerly of A Tribe Called Red, hip-hop crew Missing Links, Yes, a queer no-borders feminist, protest music legend Billy Bragg, 
and a range of other performers who in one way or another infused their music with concerns for justice, like Sarah Harmer, Denise Froman, Las Cafeteras, and more. Hillside has also been running a protest songwriting course for young musicians over the last few months, and festival attendees will get a chance to listen to what the participants have created. And in a continuation of a long-standing element of the festival, attendees will also be able to participate in numerous workshops under the banner of the Indigenous Circle Space, which is run by Indigenous elders. Barton speaks with me about the long relationship between music and struggles for social change, about the history of the Hillside Festival in Guelph, Ontario, and about this year's focus on music of protest and resistance. We spoke by Skype to phone from Guelph. Hi, my name is Tegan Barton. I am the publicist for the Hillside Festival. I've always personally been an activist and working for social justice has seemed just like a basic thing to do. Like, why wouldn't I work to make the world a better place? And when I went to university, I was given the language with which to express that and understand how systemic oppression works and how racism and misogyny and homophobia actually function in our society. And then I'm a firm believer in the arts and I felt that Blending the two made sense. Music and other art forms have the capacity to share emotions and experiences in a way that simple words don't. And being able to blend those now in a professional capacity is very fulfilling. The Hillside Festival is a 33-year-old music and arts and culture festival that promotes altruism, equality, environmentalism, and peacemaking, as well as putting on a really rad music festival. We are based in Guelph, Ontario. We're at a Guelph Lake. And Guelph is a niche kind of community. It has a small town feel to it, despite that it's actually quite a growing city. I know that sounds cliched, but there's just a sense of neighborhood here. We have people who have been volunteering for 33 years, and at some point they don't even come for the music. They're coming because it's this community atmosphere that they just love. When it was started in 1984, the idea was to put together a music festival that would be environmentally friendly, but also really cool. So this was the 80s, and the recycling box program had just started to come into Canada. And so environmentalism wasn't really on the forefront of people's minds. The biggest discussion going on in the 80s was acid rain, really. So when the organizers started, it wasn't out of some sort of political mind that they wanted to be environmentally friendly. It just made sense for them. It's like, why wouldn't you do this? And so our roots started there. They wanted to make a communal, socially focused music festival. And then in the years since, that's become our core principle. 33 years later, our environmentalism is still one of the things we are most renowned for, and it's one of our biggest aspects of our festival. A great story to tell, actually, is the permanent stage at Hillside. For many years, we didn't have the permanent stage there, and we would just construct it every year. But we knew a couple years ago that we wanted to actually build it, and we wanted it to be a sustainable structure, so it actually has a green roof. But how to do that was the big question, how to pay for it, because we're a nonprofit. And the Bare Naked Ladies actually are super fans of Hillside and they have a long history with us. They've played with us several times. They actually were hugely instrumental in getting that green permanent structure built. It looks like a normal stage. It's quite large. It spans probably a meter, two meters off the ground. You can fit, I think, almost 70 people on there. And the idea is that we're building this permanent cement structure on an island in the middle of Guelph Lake that we have an ecological and environmental responsibility to replace that land that we're taking and counteract our footprint that we're making. So the green roof is full of native plants that would have been found on the ground, and they live up on the roof. And uh, it helps cool the roof, which helps 
us use less energy to bring down the heat of the stage, and the plants just grow up there. And once you start caring about one thing, so environmentalism is an access point to caring about social justice. So you have that, and then you can expand it to other ideas because you already care about the planet. And so you need to care about the people who live in the planet. And it just made sense naturally to evolve that altruism to apply to people as well. We wanted to start bringing in people with diverse voices and people whose voices you didn't necessarily hear on the radio, whose experiences were not popularized. And so that started a trend of bringing in female musicians, non-binary musicians and artists of color and just celebrating different voices in music. A lot of music festivals get criticized, and rightfully so, for not having gender parity in their lineups. The music industry today as a whole is very dominated by white cisgendered men. And Hillside, in our past, we made a conscious effort to actively work against that. It's very easy to book bands that you like, that you hear on the radio, that are saying something cool, and then not look at the structural things that, oh, we don't have a lot of diversity. And so for the past couple of years, when we've been looking to do that, we've been actively seeking gender parity and eclipsing parity, actually, in our lineups. Tell me more about the decision this year to make the theme of the festival music of protest and resistance. With our principles of peacemaking and altruism, it just sort of made sense. Everyone here felt that with the current political climate as it is, It was now more important than ever that we try and focus on the power of music and its capacity to create social change. So we wanted to go after and bring in artists that were actively engaged in that discussion of resisting the status quo and being engaged citizens because music has the capacity to move people, but also has the capacity to get people to care. So it's a really cool weekend to come to Hillside, but there's also... There's a point to it in that we live in a really important time right now where you can't stand by the sidelines and not have an opinion on what's going on. And our artists reflect that. They are all very opinionated people who are engaged with what's happening in their own personal communities, but what's happening globally as well. Like when we started Hillside, where environmentalism just felt right, engaging with the concepts of resistance and protest music just feels right right now. To not do that would be well, kind of rolling in our own privilege and being like, oh, we're not going to have that discussion. And so we decided, no, we're going to have that discussion this year. Let's embrace it. Speak to some of that broader relationship between struggles for justice and music. Protest music has a long history. When we think of protest music, we think of the 60s. And we think of Bob Dylan and Woody Guthrie and Buffy St. Marie and Jimi Hendrix. And those are the images that come to mind of the radical American 60s. And while it's a super important period and we can feel the results of that still today and their words are still applicable. There's been protest music since, well, since music probably began, specifically in communities that were experiencing oppression Music of resistance has been part of the lifestyle because music has the capacity to change people. And you would write that into your music, a way to deal with what's going on, a way to share your stories, a way to create an oral history that can be shared amongst members of a community. So it's powerful in that way. But one of the things about protest music is that it's about a time and a place and it's very contextual. And so The protest music of the 60s, while we can still relate to it today and adapt some of it, it's not about our situation today. And so that's why we need to have new protest music and new songs of resistance that reflect our current global dynamics and our current like local feelings. It's about the personal and the political and the public all coming together. And it is inherently about the moment in which it was created. And so that makes it incredibly important now because 
it's a response to what's going on. And right now we have the rise of populism and fascism and the widening gap between the rich and the poor and the eradication of the middle class. And I could go on and on with the social ills of the planet. But we have this need for resistance music that is about what we're going through right now. Protest music has a long history of being rooted in folk and blues. But one of the beautiful things about protest music today is that it's not necessarily stuck to one genre. You're going to find a lot of protest singers who do folk music, but you're also seeing it in hip hop and rap and spoken word and country and even like EDM music or non-traditional types of sound are having themes of resistance that challenge the status quo. And I think that's fantastic. We have the plethora of musical genres that we have today and people responding to it about what's going on on the planet. And given, as you say, that the character of protest music is specific to a given moment and a given context, what are the key features to that moment and context here, now, in southern Ontario or, or in Guelph itself? And how is that showing up in music? Guelph is a small community, but we're also, we can feel what's going on nationally and internationally. And I feel that the issues that people in Guelph care about most right now are environmentalism and Indigenous issues. That's what's being reflected in our protest music, not just the ones being produced locally, but also the conversations we're having about national politics here in our community. We care about the environment, we care about what's going on to our planet, and then we also care about Indigenous issues and what's happening with those communities in our own community, and specifically with the missing and murdered Indigenous women and girls. I feel like the protest music that is rising to the top that everyone's hearing is being done by Indigenous artists, but also non-Indigenous artists who are talking about this. Most of the credit definitely goes to the Indigenous community who has forced us to have this discussion, but we're, I feel like we're starting to listen, and this is what we're resisting against and reframing that. And so it's a national issue, but it's also based in the local, because change happens in the local space. Tell me more about this year's lineup at Hillside, particularly those artists that reflect this year's theme of music of protest and resistance. So because the theme is resistance, I'm personally super excited about our resistance lineup. Leading it is Leonard Sumner. He's a Anishinaabe singer. He's in the forefront of Idol No More, and he confronts traditional hierarchies and white settler culture in his music. He's fantastic. Some people might have seen his spoken word piece that went around earlier this month called I Know Your Story as a response to the federal government's apology to Indigenous communities and our response our role as white people and how we're always saying we're sorry, but how words are words. Let's see actions. I love how deeply political he is and how beautiful of a singer he is. And then we also have DJ Shub coming. He is one of the founding members of Tribe Called Red, and he's revolutionary in his brilliance. And he is deeply involved in his community, and he's deeply involved in Indigenous issues. The two of them are actually doing a workshop together, in addition to William Prince and Sarah Harmer and Billy Bragg. That's going to be awesome. Just have like these four revolutionary protest singers sit down and write something together live. In addition to that, we have Billy Bragg speaking about the history of protest music. We have one of the modern founders of protest music coming, Billy Bragg. So that's amazing. We also have Sarah Harmer, the Canadian icon coming, and her environmentalism and her social justice work. We're very honored to have her coming. And we also have a band called the Jerry Cans. They're coming in from Nunavut. They are an Inuit band. And they blend contemporary pokes pop sounds with Inuit throat singing. They're really cool to listen to. And we also have Mindy Vyopingford. He is a Norwegian singer. 
He's probably the most traditional of folk singers we have. He tells people stories like political dissidents in Korea or imprisoned activists in India. He tells their stories through sound and through music. And he does it in a really beautiful and moving way. He's a true storyteller. And then we have a whole lineup. We have someone like Nefe, and we have William Prince, and Denise Froman, and Missing Links, and Yes, and Las Cafeteras, who are a Latina band from the U.S. They're all children of Mexican immigrants. And what makes them stand out is they're optimistic in their social justice work. They challenge what's going on in the U.S. right now, specifically as Latina people, but they do it in an optimistic way, which I think is a really unique voice going on. Protest music can be inherently negative. We can, and as activists, focus on what's wrong to a point of our own detriment. So bands like Las Cafeteras, who force us to engage with these terrible topics in an optimistic way that says, no, we can change this if we work for it, I think is also a really important thing that we don't remember enough. That, no, let's try and be optimistic about what we're doing. Remember what we're fighting for and that it's potentially within our grasp. And I understand that there are other elements of what the festival organization has been doing and of how the festival works that reflect some of these politics. Like, talk more about the way the environmental commitments of the festival manifest. So our environmental program has a long history at Hillside, but one of the cool things that not a lot of people know is how our dishwashing program works. We have a massive volunteer base at Hillside. We have well over 1,500 volunteers. And a big component of that is our green team. The dishwashers work all day in various shifts to wash the dishes at Hillside because we have absolutely no plastics or styrofoams or disposable dishes, cups, knives, cutlery on the island. Everything is reusable and recyclable, and we store it and we use it year after year. So that has helped us reduce our ecological footprint and help reduce waste going to the landfill and just help us being better citizens of the planet. And we also, we do composting on site. It's not accessible to festival goers, but we have this giant pit where we compost everything. And then because we do it once a year, the festival, that's the perfect time for the compost to be turned and ready to go. And tell me more about the workshops in the Indigenous Circle at the festival. So we actually changed the name this year. So it has been formerly the Aboriginal Circle, but in consultation with our Indigenous programmers, we have changed it to Indigenous Circle. So that's really positive. But yeah, so we have a long history with the Indigenous community and the Indigenous Circle is organized and run by members of the Indigenous community. And it's led by Jen Sherman and Lois McDonald, who are both Indigenous women. And part of the purpose is the spirit of reconciliation. And it's to provide a space for that to happen. And to provide a space for Indigenous peoples and non-Indigenous peoples to come together and listen and hear the experiences of Indigenous voices. So all of the workshops and discussion sessions that are happening there, that is the purpose. It's come learn and come away with hopefully a better understanding of Indigenous peoples and what's going on today. And I understand that the festival organization has been running a protest songwriting course in the last few months. Tell me more about that. Our protest songwriting course has been running for the past couple months. Our class, which is about seven students, they meet every week and they've been working together through how to write a song, but what, how to write a protest song. We've been encouraging them to explore their own personal politics. What is it that they personally care about? What makes them angry or upset? What makes them wish that they could change something about the world? And reflect on how that plays out in their own personal lives and how to put that into poetic lyrics, but also how to put that to music. 
Doris Fulkins is a local singer-songwriter, and she teaches music. So she taught the music component of the class. And then our own executive director, Marie Zimmerman, taught the protest experience. Marie has a PhD in English literature, and she's deeply engaged in protest music. Like, she knows the history of protest music like you wouldn't even believe. She loves poetry, and she's very articulate. And when she writes, she just writes so beautifully. And so she guided them through taking the personal and putting it into lyrics. And it's been a fantastic program. We're really happy with how it turned out. It's challenged people to confront their own biases. Why is it that they care about those particular issues, but maybe not other ones? And also the history of protest music. There's a history element. We did a little concert in May where the students performed their pieces. And we were surprised at how genuinely powerful these students' songs were. And those students will be performing on Saturday morning here at Hillside. They're going to be performing their protest music. And we have songs about all sorts of different things. We have songs about poverty and we have songs about sexual assault and songs about Indigenous politics. Like one of our students, her name is Mauve. She's an Indigenous performer and she rewrote the lyrics to O Canada and then does a spoken word piece halfway through the piece about what's going on to Indigenous peoples in our country right now. It's incredibly moving and she has this rhythm to her voice that she sounds like a seasoned professional. It's incredibly incendiary, but it's brilliant as well. We also have Missy Bowman participated. She's a stunning singer-songwriter, and she has a couple pieces about her own personal experiences with domestic violence and being a woman. I'm not normally a music crier, but she's made me cry a couple times when she performs. And it's just inspiring to see these people who are all in their late teens, early 20s, care about the world so much and what's going on in it and put it to sound and then be brave enough to perform that to people. It's really inspiring. I mean, if I could sing, I would hopefully participate, but I can't sing. So yeah, when we talk about protest music being rooted in the context of now, these students have produced music about now, about what's going on to them now and what's going on now. And so it's been fascinating and amazing to watch contemporary protest music happen in front of us. We ask the question, what does protest music look like in 2017? What looks like these students who were brave enough to put their feelings to words and to sound? And I know that another issue that has been subject to a lot of discussion in the context of a lot of different festivals and music scenes in recent years, particularly by feminists, is the question of how to deal with sexual assault and gendered violence in those contexts. What has Hillside done to deal with those issues? That is something we definitely think about. We have a committee that focuses on that. And we have a zero tolerance policy for any sort of gendered violence or homophobic behavior or any kind of oppressive actions that happen. We have staff and security and all of our volunteers are trained on how to handle that. So we hope that nothing like this will happen, but we do have structures in place if it does happen. And so we have security that goes on in camping throughout the night. And we also have clearly posted things on what to do should you experience an act of violence or should you feel unsafe. And we take the point of view of intervention and action in the moment. And so we want to make sure that everyone coming is having a safe and happy experience. So we have policies surrounding that and we're very proactive on this issue. We're not going to sweep it under the rug. We're very invested in making all of our hillsiders safe. So circling back to some of the larger questions related to music of protest and resistance, 
It seems to me that in a moment like the one that we're in right now, there's more than one way that an event like Hillside could respond. Choosing to sharpen your focus on music of protest and resistance is one way to respond to such a moment, but another way to respond would be to completely go in the other direction and to say, you know, these are important issues, but what we need is a space for relaxation and enjoyment and pleasure and recharging in the face of all of the awful things in the world. Why did Hillside make the choice that it did? Well, first... Being able to enjoy something for enjoyment purposes is really important because the idea of self-care is essential. When we're involved in activism and social justice, we need to make sure we check in with ourselves to make sure we're not pushing past where it's healthy for us to go. And we need to step aside and take a break and do something that's not about the politics. That's really important for your own physical and mental health. But saying that, we do have artists who provide fun music that isn't about the politics because we wanted to provide that opportunity for self-care for our people coming. So if you don't want to engage or you need a break, we have artists who are just fun and make really cool music. But with that, being able to say, oh, I just want to have fun is inherently an act of privilege. Some people can't do that. Some people, because of the cards they've been dealt in life, can't take a break from the politics of the world. And it just didn't feel right for us to go with that. We have a responsibility and a platform. And so it wasn't even a choice of whether we should do it. It it was something that had to be done. So maybe to wrap up, you can tie together some of the themes that have been winding their way through our, our whole conversation. What's your sense in general terms of what music brings to struggles for justice and liberation And what struggle brings to music? I think music can bring to social justice almost literally the rhythm to which we march. There are the songs that bring us together that we can play to experience something collectively. Frequently when you're in activism, everyone has a a different emotional response to a particular topic. And I feel a really good protest song can unite that emotional feeling in the moment with a group of people. And that everyone can experience the anger or resentment or empowerment to do something through that song in the moment. Also, songs can educate people. So many people, specifically ones who choose not to engage with politics, are simply not aware of what's going on. And so protest music and songs that talk about stuff have the capacity to educate them. That's what music can bring to activism. And then on the flip side, what activism can bring to music is almost a demand that music reflect what's going on in the world. Like we said, we need music that is happy and is escapist and we can just dance to. That's very important. But I also think we need to be demanding specifically on popular music that we talk about what's going on in the world and that we want to hear stories of what's going on and we want to hear different perspectives so we can bring our support to them. We can help artists elevate their voice. We can support them financially so that they can do this professionally and share their message and work towards, in a big circle, bringing what music can bring to activism and people. You have been listening to my interview with Tegan Barton about the Hillside Music Festival. To learn more about it, go to hillsidefestival.ca and be sure to search for their page on resistance and protest. To find out more about Talking Radical Radio, the guests, the theme music, and the ways that you can listen, or to suggest topics for future shows, go to talkingradical.ca and click on the link for the radio show. On the site, you can sign up for email updates or follow us on Facebook or Twitter. 
I'm your host, Scott Nye, a writer and media producer based in Hamilton, Ontario, and the author of two books of Canadian history told through the stories of activists, Gender and Sexuality, and Resisting the State, both from Fernwood Publishing. Thank you very much for listening, and I hope you tune in again next week. Thank you.